Here's the president and primary owner of TrueTech Tools, licensed engineer, and the nicest BS artist you will ever meet, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. It's our goal at Building HVAC Science to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians and contractors by helping the two professions to better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Today's an interesting episode. You'll find out uh, as we get further into it how I met Bill Robinson totally by accident and how what he does is so awesome and actually I've been able to refer him to someone just this week, someone that needed some help in an area he specializes in. And also we use a lot of my trigger word in this podcast, science. Previously a commercial diver working offshore on all work below the waterline, Bill now works a lot around the dew point. So I'll be speaking with Bill Robinson from Louisiana. His roots are in residential construction. Yet when he returned to that field, he realized he lacked sufficient training and became a sponge for knowledge. Again, a water reference there. He spent many hours working at the LSU Ag Center and working on rebuilding initiatives after Hurricane Katrina. In this episode, he'll describe what's called the LA, standing for Louisiana House, and all the challenges he's encountered in building and the hot, humid climate he lives in. Take a look at the show notes for links to his website and uh, several websites where you can follow him on social media. And there's also a link to the LA House. And one of the descriptions of the LA House is simply a science-based showcase of solutions to shape your future with resilient, healthy, and efficient homes. If that at all piques your interest, listen in to Bill. How are you doing today, Bill? Delightful. It's starting to cool off. And so that's always a good thing. Okay, cool off. That's part of what we're going to talk about today is the temperature, the outdoor temperature in buildings. Where are you located? I'm actually right in Orleans Parish. So I'm in New Orleans, South Louisiana. We met through, I think it was through a LinkedIn post that Allison Bales did. And if people aren't following Allison Bales and the Energy Vanguard, you should do that. Got a lot of topics in HVAC and building science. And we were talking about the upcoming building science summer camp. And I was looking for riders to fill up my van. And Bill and I almost connected on that point. Right, Bill? Close enough. Considering all the challenges we have in transportation today, I think we came as close as we probably could. So why don't we just take like a little jump off to the building science summer camp. I haven't talked with a lot of people on the podcast about that. Give me your impressions of that. How long you've been going and why do you go and what do you learn? I try to make it a short answer to that question. I've been going about 10 years. And back several years ago, I did a video for a house wrap company. And the person that I was working for there was asking me, have you ever been to summer camp? And at that time, I had never heard of. This is 15 or 20 years ago. So fast forward to I'm down here in Louisiana now, working through Louisiana, Louisiana House and Claudette Reichel. And I knew that Claudette was really connected with summer camp. So I said, so, Claudette. I need to go to summer camp. And I've been going ever since, with the exception of the couple of years we had out. And it's always amazing for me. And I could go on a long time. I'll try to keep it short again. But the thing about summer camp, when I go there, I mean, I'm an in the dirt kind of guy. I'm on the ground. I touch stuff. I used to be a framer and a general contractor and all that kind of stuff. So most of the presentations at summer camp go way over my head because the people there are actually doing research and things. But every time I go, I come away, first of all, just really excited about building science and the network and the community we live in. So I am all in on summer camp. 
Excellent. And speaking of being in the dirt, you've actually been below water for some of your life, below the waterline? 15 years, yeah. As far down as the shallowest or the deepest I ever went was 460 feet. So today that's kind of shallow. But yeah, I worked offshore, North Sea, both three coasts of the U.S., two coasts of South America and New Zealand on oil platforms. And you talked about in your the briefing you gave me about your roots in construction and you started a small residential construction company in California. What was that experience like? That was very interesting. I was raised in Indiana and all my relatives up there, they built grain elevators all over the Midwest. And so they were they were the old framing square carpenter kind of guys with the old coveralls and the carpenter pencil. I mean, that's all they needed to build anything they wanted. And when I quit diving back in the middle 80s, I said, what am I going to do next? And it's funny because one of my cousins who was a construction person said, well, you can always do construction <laughs> as if that was the last fallback and something mm, that makes sense. And so I got into it. I started doing construction because it's really easy to start a little dog in a pickup truck construction company. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. We actually got up to about eight people for a while doing some a little bit more sophisticated work. But I ran that company for several years until I moved back to Louisiana in 08. And then I swore I would never start another company again. I would never have another employee. But boy, is that hard to deal with. So you also talked about some in your briefing, you gave me about some of the influences that you had in the early days and how you maybe change your perspective on residential construction. Oh, man, that's a real evolution. Well, first of all, to me, this is all about story. When I quit diving, I was, yeah, I was a good diver. Let's just put it at that. And I had a lot of success. I was able to manage doing that work under the water. And I found myself, I used to live in Santa Barbara, in Santa Barbara, trying to, out on knee boards and concrete, trying to smooth out some concrete because the guy who was the lead wanted to get out of there early. And so I'm out in the middle of this concrete on a couple of knee boards with a steel trowel. And I just had this feeling of, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing here, even though I thought I did. And so that made me feel very uncomfortable. But I realized I spent 15 years being a pretty successful commercial diver. So what's the missing point right here? And then the whole missing point was training. And so that's enter train to build, right? Hmm. Okay. So what is train to build? Great segue, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> The background on that was that I used to do a lot of internet looking at stuff, trying to figure out how to do Dreamweaver and all that. Now it's pretty easy to do. Anyway, there was a company called Click to Learn that ended up getting bought by somebody else. And I thought, that's kind of a cool name. And so how about I go to Train to Build? So that's where the name came from. And then I have worked different places. I've done a lot of stuff at JLC. I've written a couple of articles for Fine Home Building. I used to do presentations at the Builder Show, the Remodeler Show and a bunch of other stuff. And I started out not knowing anything, and I'm not sure what I do know now, but not knowing anything to getting to the point where I was considered, I'm reluctant to use the word expert, so a commentator or an authority on stuff like the building envelope. And it, the hall started with for me with windows, working on a job in California where we were installing the windows. And out there, all the stucco people installed the windows when I was working out there in the middle 80s. And it's like, I couldn't figure out how they put those windows in. It's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I made some pretty serious mistakes. So that put me on a path to start becoming pretty knowledgeable about windows. And I've taught window installation all over the country. We're just doing a session Monday with builders on how to install windows. And I probably foolishly, but think that if you show me a window, I'll show you how to install it so it won't leak. And so anyway, that's what got me into it was realizing 
there are all these gaps. And come on down to Louisiana and see what I see here. And that's what brought me back was the fact that I was watching people doing stuff the way they've always done it. The session I had on Monday, I was astounded. Down here, and I want to get into that more, but down here, the big issues are solar shading and air sealing. Up north, in my opinion, it's air sealing and insulation. Not to say that insulation isn't important down here, but if we don't air seal, we lost the game. Anyways, I just drifted off the track there, but that's what I'm looking at. So... And JLC, just for listeners that are not familiar, is the Journal of Light Construction. And you mentioned Fine Home Builder. What kind of audiences do you think they cater to? I have to be careful about this. I think that the JLC caters to a range of contractors from the beginning all the way through the evolution of that. As building science and building practices grow, I think they've grown their presentation. So I think that JLC goes primarily to a contractor or somebody who's doing work in the field. And then I think that fine home building covers that, but they also reach back over into the DIY homeowner stuff, which is, I think that's a fine thing. First of all, that's part of the market, but it's valuable information. And not to say that the information that they provide for the DIY person isn't valuable and useful to the working contractor or carpenter, but it's very helpful for everybody. So anyway, both of those publications, those were my go-to resources for a long time. And I think sometimes communicating with the DIY community helps them understand how to better work with contractors and professionals and experts is you take them up to a knowledge level. So they're asking the right questions and they appreciate what's coming back from the contractor. Absolutely. We live in such a different world from when I started doing this now. And I think that one of the challenges that we run into is that there's so much information on the internet, so much information on the internet. And I want to go into how that affects us down here. But most homeowners that I talk to, first of all, have all Googled Bill Robinson and Train to Build. And I have a couple of Instagram channels and all that stuff. So they know more about me than I know about them. So that's interesting. But they also have looked on information coming from, and I rage about this a lot, from a heating climate. And we ain't in a heating climate. We're in a cooling climate. And so the information is flop it around backwards. I try to explain that to homeowners. Just take whatever you thought you heard from somebody in Minnesota and turn it around the other way. And you may have what we have down here. Now, you mentioned earlier Claudette Reichel, I think I pronounced it correctly, and the Louisiana House. You have some involvement with that. Describe what the Louisiana House is. I tell you what, that's pretty amazing. Louisiana House is something that Claudette Reichel, Dr. Reichel, I call her, because she has one of those doctor things. Dr. Reichel had a vision back in the early 2000s that to build this building that showed good building practices or best building practices in the Gulf Coast hot, humid area. And so she started with a lot of help and support from industry to put together this structure, and it was called Louisiana House. And she worked on that, and then it got sidetracked by Katrina. Katrina sidetracked everything. But then it was finished shortly after Katrina. And so what Louisiana House is meant to do is show what four different methods of framing, different kinds of insulation, open cell, closed cell, fiberglass, all that kind of stuff, HVAC systems, solar panels. The whole idea is a demonstration house to show people in our climate how things could be, should be done. And the interesting thing about it is there is no other resource in our region that I know about. Florida has some pretty good stuff, I think. And I don't know what's over in Texas. And there's some things at the universities. But in my opinion, and maybe this is confirmation bias, but in my opinion, 
Louisiana House is covering the base down here that needs to be covered seriously as we move into this higher performance advanced building practices. If we don't follow along and change the way we do stuff, it's going to cost somebody a lot of money. Am I recalling correctly, was there something in her presentation at Building Science Summer Camp this year with regard to the ability to build a house such that a disaster or a flood could allow it to be rebuilt more efficiently or less expensively? Did I'm getting that right? Oh, absolutely. I think. And so once again, all this stuff is an evolution. And so the first answer to that is yes. And we collectively through Louisiana House, and I do a lot of work on my own, are trying to figure out ways to figure out and then deliver the information to homeowners and contractors how to build flood-hardy, damage-resistant, resilient, I think is the latest term that we're using, resilient homes so that they can better withstand storm damage. And then on a sidebar on that is something called wet flood proofing. Because the whole idea is if it's going to flood, you need to raise the building up. That's all there is to it. You need to do elevation. When I first came back down here, people were talking about elevation and I didn't click with it because I'm still a West Coast guy and I use West Coast terminology a lot. But anyway, elevation is just simply raising houses. But everybody can't afford to do that because it was discovered after Katrina or maybe even people knew that before. But the $30,000 that was being provided from homeowners to elevate their house wasn't even close to getting there. And it's more like $100,000. So anyway, and if you go to a place like Lake Charles or some of these other lower income areas that they're not in the city and not fancy urban areas, they just don't have the money and the resources to do that rebuilding. So what can we do? And it's my opinion that Louisiana, Louisiana House, and even FEMA is starting to embrace a little bit more. The whole idea is everybody can't elevate their house. And so how can we use these flood damage resistant building materials, which FEMA has actually identified these materials that can stand up better to flooding. The simple example is glass. And there's a bunch of other stuff that is not impacted by it. So once again, absolutely trying to push it in that direction. And I want to throw in a pitch. Claudette, Dr. Reichel has retired and she has done an amazing job of putting this all together. That's just mind blowing what she's been able to accomplish. She's moved on and there's another person coming in, Carol Friedland, who's taken over Claudette's job. And so she's coming in with fresh eyes because Claudette's been working around this for 20 plus years, just on Louisiana House. And after a while, you start seeing things from a certain direction. And Carol's coming in and saying, let's see what else we can do. And so the big cool thing about that is Carol, I guess I call them by their first names a lot. Dr. Friedland, Carol, is trying to get us more into resilience. So we're looking at fortified, doing training with fortified, flood damage, resistant building, and to focus on how can we help these people in Lake Charles and Lafouche Parish and Laplace? And what's the next place? Who knows what it's going to be? So where's the next place that we can rebuild and how can we help people do it so they can stand up? So anyway, Bill, to answer your question in the long form, yes, <laughs> we're doing a lot of that down here. <laughs> Is the Louisiana house something you can actually visit? Do you make an appointment to see it? How does this work? I don't think that you have to make an appointment. And just to be clear, I live in New Orleans and Louisiana House is on the LSU campus in Baton Rouge. And so it's 80 miles and an hour and a half away from me. So I don't know everything to do. I'm a part-timer there. I work there two or three days a month, although that's going to start building up a little bit. But it's open for visitation. I believe that you just can drop by. There's a little sign-in sheet and a little tip jar. And you go in and I think right now, because I think there's still some reaction to the COVID and the pandemic stuff. So there's a little caution. You don't necessarily, you can come in there, you're going to be asked to wear a mask. 
and all that. But I think you get self-guided tours now because there's a bunch of those little truth windows in the building and a bunch of little tags around each one of those things that gives you a little bit of, of a description of what that is. And now what's interesting is in the process of that, we're looking at doing a bunch of video things and trying to add QR codes to those tags so that there can be something more than a short sentence or paragraph. So yeah, anyway, yes, visitors are welcome. Come on down. In fact, when I work with homeowners and especially contractors, I say, have you been to Louisiana House? And it's usually no, you should go. There's stuff there that you can learn. If nothing else, the whole thing here, we start out by making things better with awareness, right? So if you're aware that there is a different kind of insulation, or if you're aware, for example, in my opinion, that all new HVAC systems should have a dedicated dehumidification system with them rather than just going in on their own. Once you're aware that's even a possibility to do that, then it starts moving the needle in that direction. The Louisiana House, does it include examples of poor and best practices or only best practices? Only best. And so I got to throw a little thing on that. I've had a chance to travel some places. I was over at the University of Florida with their testing center, which is awesome. And some other places with some manufacturers who do testing. And I look at the testing modules that they use. And so they're testing like cycle things or wind resistance. And when you look at those installations, every wall is perfect. Everything is perfect the way it's going to be in a lab. And that's how it's tested. And so I think that sometimes we just run into a challenge with that. Anyway, so there are no bad practices hopefully shown at Louisiana House. There's plenty of those out in the field. Sure. Okay. What are some of the challenges in building in a hot, humid climate? In my opinion, the first big challenge is overcoming the differences in building practices from climate, because we're directly in climate zone two. And what, you're in climate zone five or six or something like that? I'm in five, yeah. Five, okay. Our building practices are different, but most of the information, aside from Louisiana House, is coming from northern climates, heating climates. And so helping people to understand that, whether that be contractors or homeowners, to me, that's the biggest challenge. Now, once we understand that the building science and the thermodynamics and the drive and all that is different, it's different. Here, it's outside to in, up there, it's inside to out. Of course, it varies. And I realize all those other kinds of changes. But I think that's the biggest challenge with that. And then, like, I just spent eight hours with a builder on Monday. And it's funny because I had a 55-slide PowerPoint because I have a tendency to overdo all that kind of stuff. I showed three slides. I got through three slides because it was a great session because we had a dialogue and this was just by happenstance. My first slide gave an example of the building envelope, what the building envelope is or whatever term we're using for that today. And that led the discussion for the rest of the day. The rest of the day, so how do we air seal? Where do we air seal? How do we test for it? What kinds of materials? And so just making that aware, making contractors aware of that. Well, that's why I have a job, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) So what are new codes doing on the job site? How are they going to affect construction? Once again, this is probably one of those things that I'm talking out of class a little bit, but Louisiana did not have a state building code until 2007, as I understand it. I came back here in 08. I was out in California where it's building codes every day all the time. So I think that the state building code was initiated in 2007. And in the process of doing that, there was a lot of slow adaptation of how that building code should be. And so the classic example of what I look at, and I actually through South Face teach the duct and envelope testing program so that 
contractors, HVA, anybody who takes a course can go do inductive envelope testing. We're on the 2009 energy code. And the 2009 energy code is outdated now. It calls for blower door and duct test or a visual inspection, right? So when I talk with contractors, I find, I say, do you do blower doors? And you get this vague look around and say, yeah, we do. And then find out, so it was a blower door test. Well, you actually didn't do all that. So I think that helping contractors understand and overcome, and I think I'm still on the same answer, overcome what the challenges are with being able to meet the newer building codes. And as the buildings get tighter, what happens to it? This is me throwing shade, but they just don't understand how critical it is. You'd think it'd be over with and Allison would freak out with all this. But when I was doing this session, somebody, one of them right away said, well, a building needs to breathe, doesn't it? I go, okay, you've just opened the door to an all day discussion. And so I explained to them, okay, you got to stop saying that. You can say a building needs to dry. And now we can continue. So everybody repeat after me, a building needs to dry. (laughs) I like that one. I encountered that once. I was giving a presentation and someone walked in early. I detected an accent that might be from your region. And he said, what's this presentation about? I mentioned it to him and he said, buildings need to breathe. I'm out of here. It wasn't open. The mind wasn't open to change. Yeah, I can see where that can come from. And I think that the building needs to breathe because, well, you know why. But I mean, it's like, especially down here, one of the predominant building structures in Orleans Parish, and probably in South Louisiana, is a balloon frame shotgun house or a balloon frame double. And they were designed, in my opinion, very well. What happened was a disconnection between the exterior cladding and the plaster on the inside of walls could ventilate, not breathe. They could ventilate and they could drain and dry, right? And so they were still dry. And just to witness that, one of the biggest things that comes up here when people try to insulate walls in those older structures with down here, they call those that horizontal lap siding a weatherboard, which is if you go into the lumber yard and ask for horizontal lap siding, we don't have that, but we do have weatherboards. Anyway, with those open cavity walls and put insulation in them without any weather resistive barrier, we are stuck with the problem. And I'm going to throw some more shade here is cellulose has been really highly pushed in a lot of places because of all the good things about cellulose. The challenge with cellulose, because it absorbs so much moisture, when those unweather-resistive barrier-built walls don't have any way to keep moisture out, but they were designed to drain and dry, when they get filled up with insulation, the dynamics change. And if you go back to Bill Rose's book, back talking about what happened in the 30s, the same thing happened there. You start putting insulation in walls, and then painters didn't want to paint their walls anymore. So the same kind of thing is happening here, is to be able to know when you can insulate. And I drifted away, I think, once again from your question, but I'm afraid that's what we're going to have to put up with, is I'm a drifter. Huh? That's fine. You're a drifter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You have to bring me back, Bill. <laughs> okay, I will bring you back. I think you mentioned train to build. Is that your primary day job? Is that what you do most of the time? Well, that's interesting. Yes and no. My business license and all that stuff is under train to build. But mostly what I do now is building envelope evaluations. That's my primary job. And some people have suggested maybe I should change my email and my website because I do as much training as I can. I would love to do training every day. I like it. I like getting in front of people and interaction and answering questions. And I love to see when the light comes on. What I have found though, is is there's such a great need down here also. And this is a fairly large region, definitely below that white dotted line in the building code or in the climate zone thing we see to help homeowners to manage it, you know, we got dripping registers, we got stains around stuff, we got buckled wood floors, all those kinds of things. And so I've put myself in that place. I've been using a moisture meter 
for several years. So now I have several moisture meters, a decent thermal camera, a bunch of other devices to, temp- to test temperature, relative humidity, and a lot of apps and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, the meters now that we're getting a hold of, like I have a Delmhorst BDX30. I just happen to remember that because that's cool. Anyway, so I can take a lot of readings with that thing, and then I can transfer those readings to my iPhone. And so then I can use that data in order to make the point. And going back on that one is I'm more of an in-the-dirt kind of guy. You touch it, you feel it, it's real. However, sometimes when we're trying to transmit this information, data goes somewhere, right? And so now I actually, even though I, a lot of times I'll get a call, somebody will say, I got a moisture problem. I could solve the problem probably on the phone, but that's not good, right? (laughs) And you know exactly why. (laughs) But anyway, so mostly what I do now is go to homes and evaluate the envelope, find out why it's leaking air, why there's moisture, why the floors are buckling, and then write up a commentary about recommendations about what they should do. And then the next hard part about that is connecting them with a contractor who will do the work. Because once again, that's a void out there. I've worked with a couple of local contractors down here who will actually discuss with me and don't walk away with their arms folded and shaking their head about how it's a better way to do stuff. And so that's cool. And so one little sidebar here on that is I was able to, because I'm big on moisture meters. I love gadgets, right? At this training with this builder, they were probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 of their superintendents, a pretty large custom builder. I was able to convince them their CEO to buy a moisture meter for all of their superintendents, which first of all, they should have had them already, but to buy them for them, wow, maybe we're moving ahead. Speaking of moving ahead, do you think it's getting better or getting worse? What do you mean? In terms of the recognition that your climate zone requires special attention. It just anything won't do. All right. So I'm going to call it changing, right? So here's what's happening is, is that it rained 80 inches last year here. Typically, it's 60. So we had a heavy rain. I don't know what the rainfall is like here. But as things change, whether it's the climate, the temperature, whatever it might be, there's more of an attack and more of these sloppy building practices we've been using now are coming home to roost. They're coming biting us, right? And so what's changing with the builders right now, in my opinion, is not that they're being enlightened by going to a BS and beer show or summer camp or something. They're being enlightened because they get a call from the attorney and it's litigation. That's too bad, but that's where it has. It's coming from the back end. Yeah. So enlightenment can come from, I'm just taking a note here, from training or from a subpoena or a summons? <laughs> well, or just a letter. <laughs> just a letter. Just a letter. Okay. Yeah. Let's. Well, I mean, I think that, and I try to stay out of the legal stuff. On the one hand, I'd love to go in and battle with attorneys. On the other hand, I know that it's not a good choice for me because I would end up saying stuff that wouldn't help anybody at all. So I'm trying to stay away from that, but I've got a half a dozen different, I'm going to call them cases right now, where the owners are talking about going into litigation. They're already talking about attorneys. And it's kind of interesting without digging too deep in it. So I'll get a call back or I'll get a message back from an attorney on a house that I've worked on. And they'll say, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? And they usually don't like my answers because it's just like, you got to fix it. Like somebody sent me a picture of a concrete slab that had a bunch of cracks in it yesterday. And they said, so what do you think about this? And my first thought was, because I like to touch stuff. I thought they make some products out there that we can actually drill some holes and use some carbon fiber stitches, almost like one of those band-aid things that we use when you cut it. I can't think of the name of what you call it. Butterfly? Butterfly. Yeah. It's kind of like a concrete butterfly. And I, and I said, you can do that. And then you can come back here with some. And then I said, wait a minute, hold it. Stop, Bill. Calm down. You can fix this, but this is an engineer job. 
because once again, I don't want to carry the liability. I think we can fix it, but I don't want to carry the liability. So call an engineer, get somebody in here who will put a stamp on it because I'm not going to stamp it. That's why I tell people the only license I have is to drive a car. That's my only license. I used to be a BPI proctor. I was an installation master trainer, a bunch of other kind of stuff. I just decided that those things were number one, not necessarily saleable in the market, but what I run into here in Louisiana is, and I've had a chance to work with a lot of home inspectors, that the home inspectors are significantly constrained by what they can do and what they can't do. And I have no constraints. It could be scary or it could be a good thing. But here's an example of that, Bill, is like using a thermal camera. If you've used a thermal camera and you use that as any kind of evidence, if unless you can show you've been thermal camera trained, it doesn't count. And even moisture meters, I've been told by some of those inspectors that because they haven't been trained using a moisture meter, they really can't use them. And I think that's a little BS. But the fact of the matter is I don't have those constraints. I can go out and buy myself a moisture meter self-train, which is easy enough because most of those manufacturers are delighted to tell you what's going on, how to work their equipment anyway. And I can do what I feel is appropriate and say what I feel is appropriate. So taking us down another road and along the vein of people learning more about what you do and learning from what you've done, you're on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. First, how and why did you get into social media and when? I think I first got into YouTube, even back before Google bought it, just as more of a way to connect with family. I think that was just to share like a little family vacation or some kind of thing that we did or we all got Thanksgiving and stuff like that. But I was struggling along, and about six or seven years ago, we used to do a lot of window restoration stuff. And so a little bit on that was I came back here, and there's a lot of old wood double-hung windows that were being taken out and vinyl windows being put back in. And I used to do that, too, but I didn't do it with old wood windows in Orleans Parish. I did it with old aluminum windows in Santa Barbara County, a completely different environment. And so we had a company that I got to, you know, I came up with a way to weather strip wood windows, which was pretty cool. And it's actually, you can see most of it up on my Facebook, YouTube, all that kind of stuff in the Instagram channels. But anyway, I had somebody working for me who was of a different generation than I am because I'm in that other generation, right? Actually, I'm pretty much, I think, into all this kind of stuff. Anyway, Sophie said, we need to do Instagram. I said, ah, that's not very smart. So we started out my first Instagram channel was 504 Historic Windows, which is what my window restoration company was, 504 being the area code. And so we started doing that. And then as I start seeing all this other activity occur out in the web world, I thought, man, if I want to do anything, I need to do that. So one little story that tells a story on me, I don't mind doing that, was there was a company that had a product that I had them send me a sample of that product. And I said, I would love to do a video on this for a fee and we'll post this video out. And so they looked at that and they said, you don't have enough followers. So I said, okay, I need to change my followership. And so I went back and said, I paused before I responded to that email first. And I said, so how many followers do I need? And the response back was 80K. 80K. So I thought another a little bit and I wrote back and said, okay, I got the 80. Now I'm working on the K. (laughs) Well, I don't have either one of them right now. (laughs) But anyway, so it just occurred to me that for one thing, it was just a good way to try to get more work. But what I find it to be now, because I think that time has passed for me to get in a lot of work from the big manufacturers, which is fine because I got plenty here. What that does now is I can show homeowners what's happening. 
so this is what we found. And I try to keep people's addresses and names out of it, but this is what we found. That helps people to come in and now look ahead of time to check and see. So it was just a matter of uh, Sophie got me into it and now I can't get out. <laughs> You're trapped. I'm stuck. You also, you've done work with that historic windows and doors. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I think I said early on that I got started in really digging into the construction knowledge world with windows. I was watching the stucco contractors install windows out in California because the old timers really knew how to do water management. So then I started traveling down that line. And because I like to learn stuff, I started saying, okay, how do I have to learn how to do window installation? So we used to do a bunch of window installation. I took some courses and then I found out about something called Installation Masters, which is part of ASTM E2112's door and window installation thing. So I became a trainer on that and got to know, understanding more and more about windows. My mother had a bed and breakfast in Santa Barbara. They didn't call them bed and breakfast then, but anyway, whatever it was, she had a facility. She rented out rooms to that. It had some old windows in it. And so how do we make these windows work? Because there was no way that we ever wanted to take those old windows out. First of all, Santa Barbara's Architectural Review Board, probably not going to let you do it. But the other thing is, how can we make that happen? And so I came up with a way to restore wood windows with weather stripping using modern technology, modern tools rather than the old style stuff. And when I got back down here, I saw in one of my lead pictures that I show was a house out in the Ninth Ward. It was a house that had flooded. It was a shotgun house. They'd taken the windows out and they put vinyl windows back in. And the siding had been pulled back from the edge of the window some distance. And it's like, how's this going to get done? And knowing full well that they were going to put fiberglass bat insulation in, by the way, with the paper facing the wrong way, because it faces different down here than it does up there. We want it to the outside down here. Anyway, that's a whole other channel. But anyway, I started realizing that I could come up with a way to weather strip these windows using Q-Lon and silicone bulb and stuff like that that allow people to have a window that was reasonably high performance, and the high performance is really not the right term, without having to take the old windows out and maintaining now the historic fabric of that building. So I came up with the process with a lot of help, not on my own. I had a lot of help with that. And my whole idea, once again, is, okay, I'm going to train all the contractors in New Orleans and South Louisiana how to do this. Well, that didn't happen. I've been able to get three or four different companies to do that, but mostly it's like they're not interested in it. So I started doing it myself. And so we did a ton of window restoration. And the whole idea was on the windows, take the old sashes out, restore them, put them back together, reglaze them if necessary, and then put what I think is cool weather stripping process back in and put them in. And it really works. And on one of my videos, I've got a young man standing in front of a tall walkthrough window and just raising it up and down and listening to the sound. It's not going, it's going, so in the video, I called it the sound of weather stripping, but it's also the sound of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I'm looking on your YouTube channel. I found it, the sound of weather stripping. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's very neat. So that's how we got into that. And I did that for quite a while. And I really like doing it, but I don't like glazing. I don't like glazing putty. Some people find it very meditative. But I don't. I find it very annoying, right? And so some other things happened, and I went back to the thing is I don't want to have any employees. I like working with people. I like showing people how to do stuff, but I don't like having to deal with other people's problems. I've got enough of my own. Quite a wide-ranging conversation here. Very interesting. Really glad I got a chance to finally meet you. We did not cross paths at summer camp because it's such a busy time, and there's so many people there, close to 500 people there at one time. So I'll put a link to the 
Building Science Summer Camp sessions in the show notes, as well as a link to Louisiana House, your YouTube channel. You mentioned Building Science and Beer. There's a lot of great resources here. And as a teacher and instructor, I'm sure you want these things shared, help change people's minds. Any closing thoughts for the listeners? I think that, first of all, I'm very grateful for people like you and all the other people who are doing a lot of good, clear work to advance the knowledge, the practices that we have in building. And so I think that's very a help. On the other hand, I'm concerned that as we rush towards these passive house buildings or whatever, tighter buildings, that unless the builders that are doing it are really influenced and apparently by legality, by the attorneys, unless something changes, we're going to keep continuing to have problems. So my whole thought would be, first of all, thank you for doing what you do, Bill. But also the audience out there realize that we're in a different climate so that the dynamics, the building dynamics are different here than they are up in climate zone five or six or even four, really. Got it. Very good. And I'll have your website, traintobuild.com, a link in the show notes for people that want to follow that. And I want to thank you again for hooking up with me and getting a chance to have this conversation. I look forward to having more with you in the future, Bill. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And we'll hope to see you around somewhere soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where we spoke with Bill Robinson and learned more about building in a hot, humid climates. I also host the ResTalk Podcast, where you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and several peripheral topics. There's also a lot of great trade-related resources and influencers out there, including the HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Reardon, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, and HomeDiagnosis.tv. And of course, there's always the reliable Jim Bergman for information on a wealth of subjects. You can connect with him a lot through Measure Quick or the Measure Quick YouTube channel. Some of the topics we could discuss here require technical training for proper interpretation or safe execution. So if you're a trained pro, you can go right ahead. If you're not, please consult with and hire a pro. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.